You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for the shoulders that we stand upon, uh, for instilling in the life of your church uh, a sense of um, not history for history's sake, uh, but Lord, a uh, lively faith uh, which uh, we share with those who have gone before us. And Lord, as the author of Hebrews tells us, the dead yet speaketh. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak uh, through them uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit this day and unto your coming again in glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, this class is kind of uh, the wheelhouse of the Advent. Uh, We're going to be talking about tracing the gospel through England and Scotland. And the reason why we're doing this is because next July, we're planning on taking a trip to England and Scotland uh, as a church. And uh, the dates are July the 13th through... 24th. The 24th. So we'll start, we'll start in London, and then we'll make our way up uh, by train uh, through the heart of England, and then we'll end up uh, in Edinburgh in Scotland. And along the way, we'll be picking up some friends. Uh, we've got people like John O'Lineball lined up. John O's been a Lenten preacher here. In fact, uh, I'll just go ahead and say it. John O's one of the best Lenten preachers. That Every time he comes, he, uh, he always does such a great job. Uh, so Jono, who is on the theology faculty at Cambridge University, is there. Uh, we're working on getting our good friend Andrew Atherston uh, to be with us in Oxford, as well as maybe another academic who is a Cranmer scholar, and then uh, still working, but I think we're going to be able to pull it off because I was in touch finally uh, with uh, him. Uh, a very uh, big name uh, is going to meet us in uh, Edinburgh and, uh, and be with us in our time up there. So what we want to do this morning and next week, is to really kind of walk through our itinerary, uh, what it is we're going to be seeing, what it is that we're going to be doing. Uh, if you've ever been on a trip with the Advent, it's not sightseeing. Now, I mean, if you went with Paul's all to these places, uh, all of a sudden you realize you're on the bus for two hours to go out into the countryside just to see an etching on a pulpit. Uh, that's not going to happen uh, this trip. Uh, but uh, we are going to go see some things. And the hard thing about it, we're not going to cover everything. So if you say, well, you forgot about this and such. The thing about England, if you've ever been there, you'll go to a place and you'll think that we're here for this reason. But then actually something happened in that same place 200 years later that was very significant. I mean, if you've ever been to England, you know, in America we have those big silver signs by the side of the road that say what happened in that place. And in England, they have these teeny tiny little blue dots with maybe 20 words or less. And I remember walking through Oxford once, and there was this little blue disc that said, electrons discovered here. (laughs) Uh, I mean, classic English understatement. But if it were America, we'd put up a visitor center with a kid's electron ride, and uh, I mean, we we would really do it all. And so uh, you really do have to peel back uh, the layers uh, when you're in England. And so hopefully uh, this, these classes will whet your interest if you are interested. Gil, how can they find out about uh, the trip, the details of it? Troy Hayes and Brownell Travel are going to be coordinating this with us, and Beth Flowers, another parishioner. So you can certainly talk to me, but as soon as you talk to me, I'll pitch you to Beth um, very quickly, and she'll give you all the details. That's the great part about the trip is the details are taken care of with such care that I have to give no mind to that and get to 
talk, think about the things that are fun to me, for me to think about. Yeah, and if you want to get a feel for what the trip is like, the pace and, and uh, the hotels or the food, if you're into that kind of thing, you might want to talk to someone who went on our Germany trip. Um, Brownell did that as well. Uh, and just how receptive they are. Uh, after the uh, second chicken dinner, I said to Troy, I said, Troy, you know, I mean, we're in Germany. We, we, we kind of want German food, and I should have never said that because he's like, would you like another pig knuckle? And, um, and so there I was in the summer in Germany, which is actually a little bit hot, uh, eating uh, pork and sauerkraut and loving every minute of it. And in fact, at one point, uh, it got so, uh, I got so nauseated and overwhelmed and felt so sick uh, because I was eating such rich food. I realized uh, one of two things had to happen. I needed to start eating something green or I needed to take a lesson from evolutionary biology and break through the sausage wall. <laughs> and uh, and I, I did it. And what really did it is we went. We made a side trip. And this is another thing that's always a possibility with the Advent. Uh, we went over to Bomberg, which is famous for its smoked ales. People describe it as liquid ham. Uh, and that was the breakthrough for me. It was amazing. It, it was like delicious. It really uh, saved my. Not- so you can look forward to smoke, not smoked ale, but things like that uh, in England. Uh, but it's not just a fun time. It really is a bit of a pilgrimage. And so we really do want to talk about the reason why we're going uh, in order to uh, reconnect uh, with our roots and to learn more of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for our lives. So look at some slides. Um, John Wycliffe, who was an Englishman, um, 14th century, so 150, 170 years before the Reformation. John Fox, um, the one who compiled Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the best-selling books in history. That's what Andrew Atherston talked about here at the Advent back in January. Um, John Fox called him the morning star of the Reformation. If we want to trace the gospel through England and Scotland, and then by that, trace the gospel to the Advent, where it was preached just 20 minutes ago. Um, We look at John Wycliffe. Um, He was probably the first, he and Jan Hus, John Hus over in Bohemia, but we're going to England and not Bohemia, and Wycliffe was a little bit before Really remarkable what John Wycliffe was able to do. 150, 170 years before Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door in 1517, John Wycliffe said a lot of the same things. He translated the Bible um, from the Latin at the time, the only thing he had, the Latin Vulgate, into English. So he was already doing Bible translation in 1380, 1360. Uh, He spoke out against the abuses of the church, the papacy, of transubstantiation, of clerical celibacy. The themes that occupied the 16th century were already ingrained in England in, in the 14th. So I've got to move on because we could talk about Wycliffe for three days. So just interesting because this happened later to, to Martin Bootser, and we'll see a picture of that where we go visit a church in Cambridge in Great St. Mary's. But they would do this a lot. Wycliffe sort of unusually um, uh, managed to die of natural causes as a relatively old man. But then the church caught up to him, and they went back and dug up his bones just to burn the bones and kind of have a, a burning of the, of, the, of the heretic after the fact. And this is an etching of that where they dig up uh, Wycliffe's bones in Lutterworth, England. We won't go there. And then pouring him into the river just to make a big deal. But if, if you're, you're tracing you go, the gospel. If you, if you go to rugby school, where you know, Thomas Arnold, <coughs> the famous rugby school where rugby was invented, Lutterworth is right next to it, so you can go to the church and see. And there's, a, I think, still a portrait. I remember a portrait of Wycliffe being in there. So if you're tracing the gospel, you would say, you know, what are they, how did the gospel make its way to the English-speaking world? Um, you would say the remnants of, through, through the Reformation, you'd say Lollardy, which was the name of the people who followed John Wycliffe. And so John Wycliffe and his followers, 
was still present in 1520. And then in Cambridge, which is where we'll go um, on the second day, was really the gate uh, through which a lot of different things started to coalesce. This is a portrait, I mean, a picture of um, Great St. Mary's University Church, which was founded in 1205 in Cambridge. Um, it was here, also in this church, I think in 13, no, 1480, 1487, something like that, that a humanist, this is the time of the Italian Renaissance, um, so that's what we call the movement, but the idea that drove the Renaissance called humanism, and here's, here I am talking to Jason Wallace about this stuff, which is really funny. Um, the idea that drove this was called humanism. This was the first lecture on humanism that happened, and humanism was an important thought movement in England um, at the time of the Reformation. We can talk a lot about that later, but this is a picture of John Lineball, friend of many of us, um, as we had our Reformation celebration at Cahaba Brewery on the 24th. This is the University Church of Cambridge, and John O, a real honor, was asked to give the lecture commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so this was on October 31st, um, 2017, just two or three weeks ago, where they moved the pulpit out to the middle where it would have been in the 16th century, and he gave the lecture commemorating the, uh, the Reformation. He'll be with us the entire week. So this is Great St. Mary's, where humanism came into Cambridge, uh, where Lollardy was still very much a part, where the what's called the English affective tradition, which influenced Cramner so much, where we get these words like comfort and succor, uh, to, uh, to laud and to magnify, where there's just this mellifluous sort of blending of words that's very much sort of Cramner, the humanist, and also the English mystic, the English affective tradition, wanting to really sort of move the heart, get down into the affect. Uh, that all came through Cambridge, as did at this time the, uh, and in, interrupt anywhere you want, Andrew, um, uh, of course what was going on in Germany with Martin Luther. It was through Cambridge, uh, as a lot of us would know at the White Horse Inn, the bar in Cambridge, where some of the people started to meet to hear about this new idea, the new learning, as they called it. Uh, and Cambridge is where it all started. And so it's really important that we spend some time there. This is a picture from the backs, as they call it, from, uh, from the back on the River Cam, where you can punt, and I'm sure we'll probably do that. And this is Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And this is where Thomas Bilney, who would be the first one to be converted by the new learning. He took Erasmus, who was a great humanist, again, sort of going back to, uh, to the Renaissance, which the Renaissance was a rediscovery of all things old, you know, Greek and Roman antiquity, wanting to go back to the sources, ad fontes, back to the fount of where things were, wanting to go back to the first place. They had this appreciation for art and for beauty, for, for uh, beauty for its own sake, to move the heart, to woo and to persuade. All these were were key elements in humanism. And Erasmus, who we probably know is sort of the famous foil of Martin Luther, and uh, as Erasmus wrote the book, The Freedom of the Will, and Erasmus wrote The Bondage of the Will, uh, they had the two sort of uh, uh, things going back and forth. Erasmus translated the Bible um, for the first time from its original Greek uh, uh, and, 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 and put it out into a popular, to, to where anybody could read it. Bilney, being a humanist, just a brainiac as he wanted to be, uh, just wanted to read Erasmus's beautiful Latin. And so he got a copy of Latin, uh, Erasmus's Latin New Testament and was sitting somewhere right here and was converted in these words, which are familiar to us, penned about the same time. Uh, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of which I am foremost. So just to stop for a minute and sort of let that sort of roll over us. Thomas Bilney was reading somewhere like along this tree, 1519, uh, uh, overlooking the river or whatever else, however you want to romanticize that, but it's probably true. Why? Because that's what they wanted to do. They were, they were in tune to nature. They were kind of pre-romantics. They wanted to, uh, to appreciate aesthetics. They had a really high view of beauty and art and language. And then the Spirit moved his heart. As Paul was confessing his unworthiness in 1 Timothy, Bilney was taken into another uh, arena altogether. And here's his words, in fact. It's worth... We should move on, shouldn't we? <laughs> um, he said this... I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy 1, 15. It is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be embraced, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief and principal. This one sentence, through God's instruction, working inwardly in my heart, did so gladden it, which before was wounded by the awareness of my sins, almost to the point of desperation, that immediately I felt this marvelous inner peace, so much that my bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. All of this, or it's the dry, arid, sort of superstitious, as they would call it, uh, theological melu which they were in, medieval scholasticism as we know it, uh, which held no sense of certainty and assurance to a, to a sinner, to someone who was fearful or hungry, or lonely, or afraid, the best answer the church offered at that point was, do your best, and get right with God, come see me, and then for a moment, you might be okay, but then if you walk away and choose poorly, do the whole thing again, and that was the whole medieval system of grace, choice, and merit. And that's what the Reformation was about. And it's what we still contend for here. And we'll move on after this. Yeah, so let me just follow up on that as we can move to the next slide if you want. So one of the things about Bilney is that he really was in many ways a lone voice. There were people engaging this in the White Horse Inn, which you'll see um, the little placard for the tavern, uh, the public house, in a minute. Uh, but, but Bilney was really alone. But the ideas really began to make an impact uh, in England and they were really talked about, and uh, Bilney was very much vilified in Cambridge. If it had not been for sort of humanist academic freedom, uh, he might have been in really, really big trouble, uh, but he was to an extent. Uh, but just to give you an idea of how angry people were, uh, Hugh Latimer, who we're going to talk about in a minute, the great reformer, uh, the one who was burned in Oxford, this is um, right here. who uh, at the stake you know, said, play the man, Master Ridley, for today we light a candle that, that will surely never go out. Uh, Hugh Latimer, his dissertation for his, his academic degree was against the Reformation. And he actually apparently singled out Bilney in his dissertation, and Bilney's sitting right there. And so rather than Bilney flipping out, and this was also something that Archbishop Cranmer practiced a lot, rather than saying, well, I'm going to write him off, what a jerk, he actually, the next thing Bilney decided to do was to visit Latimer in his private rooms, because Latimer was a Roman Catholic priest, as Bilney was, and asked Latimer to hear his confession, like you would go to a priest for confession. And Latimer was somewhat taken back, and by the end of the confession, Latimer was completely undone. Uh, he had his whole world turned on its ear, and he came to hear the gospel for the first time and put his full trust and faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church that is uh, uh, really right across, kind of across the roadish, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit from the White Horse uh, Inn, 
uh, which is no longer there. I mean, in England, you're going to go there, and you're going to see a building being torn down, and they're gonna, you're going to be like, why are you tearing down this beautiful building? And they'll say, because it was only built in 1720. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so the, the, the White Horse Inn is gone. Uh, but this is St. Edward's Church, where uh, Gill has helpfully said Robert Barnes preached the first evangelical sermon in England on Christmas Eve in 1525, and that was considered the beginning of the Reformation in England, and that really um, set things on fire, uh, in some ways literally. Um, that's, the, that's still the pulpit. That's the actual pulpit that Barnes and Latimer uh, and Bilney would have preached from at St. Edward's Church. Final story, just kind of make conversation. Bilney tried that same trick. He went to Bishop Latimer and made his confession, and Latimer was confessed and, and converted. So he thought, well, I'm on to a good idea. And he tried it with Cuthbert Tunstall. Tunstall. Is that right? Um, and Tunstall turned him in, and that's what sent him to the stake. It didn't work twice. Um, Tunstall was a real jerk. We're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about people who got their just desserts in so, the as well. A, you know, we'll move through this. A plaque. This is the White Horse Inn. Um, placard. It's not here anymore because they tore it down for a parking lot, I think. Um, but it's where... There's uh, a blue dot. Uh, that's a blue uh, dot. It's where they, they gathered. And it wasn't all... Um, well, anyway, we'll talk about that when we're there. Let's talk about Cramner's portraits. This is a fun one. Um, first day, we'll get there, and when we're jet-lagged, we'll go to the National Portrait Gallery where this famous portrait on the right, the portrait of Thomas Cramner. Do you want to talk about these? And kind of yeah, it's at the top of the escalator. Uh, it's the first thing you see, uh, so it's very convenient. And, uh, and so you see the, uh, Hans Holbein, famous uh, artist uh, of the 16th century. That's Archbishop Warham, who is uh, predecessor to uh, Cranmer. You can see that the portraits are really a lot alike, aren't they? Uh, but there are significant differences. And I'll just point out with Warm, uh, his eyes are off in the distance, uh, his hands resting on the pillow, sort of a, he's a, a pretty old guy at this point. He's, he's kind of won the race. He's, he's done. Uh, the ornate uh, cross in the background, his mitre, uh, the draperies, uh, things like that. It's a book it, of saints right there. Yeah, the book of saints. Yep. So, I mean, really what it is is that he's representative of what medieval Catholicism looked like in England at the time. And so when Flicka did Cranmer, it really is a response to this in some ways. And so just going through it really quickly, uh, this portrait was actually filthy dirty, and they cleaned it up, and they found all kinds of things. Like you can see the broken window. See the little holes in the windows? That, wasn't re that was rediscovered because they weren't able to uh, see it because of all the, the grime on it. Uh, but representing that Cran uh, Cranmer inherited a broken church. He inherited a broken church. Uh, not only that, um, you can see uh, the things uh, there on, um, with a little piece of paper. Um, that actually says his name and how old he is. Um, so there you go. Uh, but the um, two of the books, one of them is Paul's uh, epistles, uh, the epistles of St. Paul. Uh, the other book that we can make out is uh, St. Augustine, uh, one of his writings. Uh, so Cranmer are very clearly saying that his authority is in uh, the Bible, and he's appealing to the early, he's appealing to the church fathers. He's not coming up with new ideas, but ad fontes, he's going back to the sources, uh, and that's his source of authority, not, not the mitre, which actually a mitre is a crown. I don't know if you know that. It's supposed to represent a crown. So when you see bishops wearing mitres, they're parading around as princes of the church, of which there is no such thing. And so Cranmer, of course, gets rid of it and says, no, my authority is rooted in God's word, and I'm going to appeal to the testimony of the men and women who have gone uh, before me. The third book, we have no idea what it is. We can't make it out. 
Um, so it's, uh, it's probably Mad Magazine or something <laughs> like that. Um, obviously wearing pretty much the same thing that Warm is. Uh, I'll just say something about the, the two border things. Uh, one of those is uh, the, uh, the top one is, uh, that is the creation, uh, no, that, the top one is the metamorphosis of, um, Enon or something yeah, like it, 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 you know the story of Diana and um, uh, Aneon, uh, where he sees Diana bathing and she turns him into a stag, uh, and then he spends the rest until he gets caught running away from his own hounds. I mean, that's the story of Cranmer. Right, constantly running away from the people who are supposed to be on his side. And then the bottom one is, and Ashley Knoll discovered this, the bottom one with the naked woman that, you know, is rather lurid, uh, is actually the creation of Eve. Uh, the creation of Eve. Uh, and so that's a, a print or a woodcut that, um, that Cranmer had uh, hanging up uh, in his study. Um, there are other meetings, um, but those are kind of the big ones. Uh, but really a huge shift, and, and Cranmer wanted to do that. Cranmer not looking away, but, I mean, kind of looking away, but kind of looking at us, too, a little bit more engaged uh, than Warham is in his, uh, in his painting. Comments? we got lots of slides. Yeah. This is William Warham. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury before uh, Cranmer, the last traditionalist Archbishop, you would say. He didn't do much. He didn't do much. Yeah. That is correct. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in no, third but that, but that does, but that does hit to the sort of humanist. Yeah, it's a humanist thing of rediscovering. Uh, and actually, we're probably the first generations to not know our Greek mythology. Uh, I mean, even today, older generations in England, you could make a reference to. Like I had to talk uh, to uh, my uh, children uh, this weekend uh, over. Um, over a Greek, uh, uh, oh, help me, the statue in Rockefeller Center. I really knew it at the time. Um, no, it's not that. I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, um, but we had to have a comp- Nobody knew it, but they would have known it, certainly because of the humanists. Let's move on. You want to say something about Catherine Parr or pass it over? Or- she was great. She was a great lady. If you've never read, uh, maybe Paul Saul's best book um, is uh, Five Women of the English Reformation. Really, really great. And uh, Catherine uh, was the uh, last um, wife of Henry VIII. He kind of settled on her uh, before he died and, uh, and really was a committed woman. Secret Bible studies uh, in Hampton Court Palace where they'd have Bibles on their laps and when someone would come in, they'd put their knitting or something over top of their Bibles. But do you want to say anything about Catherine? Other than, no. You know, wonderful. But she She's wrote good. some stuff. Lamentation of a Sinner, which reads still really well today. I'm going to go to the next slide. Um, one of my favorite, this is my favorite piece that I saw last summer when I was there, called The Execution of Lady Jane Grey, who was sort of a, it'd be the equivalent, because she was 16 years old when she died. Um, she was in Catherine Parr's youth group, basically, and Catherine Parr taught her the Bible, uh, and then lots of people, y'all know the story better than I do, many of you, how she was the nine-day queen of England, uh, but then ended up being executed as a 16-year-old girl, um, just a moving Moving portrait. It's, all, it's a huge portrait. It's almost the size of the screen, probably. And to go down to this room in the lower level of the National Portrait Gallery, and it's right there. We can just sit there and take it in. Some of the it's, some of the details are wrong. It was it was painted 200 years afterwards. But what they get is this little girl who's about to have her head chopped off, um, and her witness to her faith, 
where as she puts on her blindfold, two things happen. She turns to the people, and it's really happening outside of the Tower of London. She turns to the small crowd that's gathered, and she says, assist me with your prayers while I am yet alive. Why is that significant? Assist me with your prayers while I am yet alive. Very strong witness to her Protestant faith, this newfound Protestant faith to say, for after I am dead, after my head is severed from my body, I will need not your prayers. For I will be with the Lord in paradise. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the sound of a gong, I am, I am at peace. And you need to pray for me no longer, which is a strong carryover, obviously, from the medieval church. And then you put on this blindfold. I could talk about her for an hour. And what he gets, Paul de la Roche is the artist here. Um, you can see her hands kind of groping for the block, tested to very, very clearly that once it went on, her, her very human 16-year-old self came out where finally the fear, she put on her blindfold and famously said, where is it? Where's the block? What shall I do? What shall I do? And then Feckingham, probably, who was the chaplain to Queen Mary, who was a good man, any count, is probably the one who's here in the robe, who comes alongside because he'd won her over, or she'd won him over, and, uh, and took her hands and led her to the block where she reached out her arms, saying, into thy hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit. And then she was dead. And we'll see the place. It's really remarkable. Um, Jane Grey, she's really, she's let me really say, something. Uh, one, of the, one of the accusations that, I mean, you've got to remember that in this day and age, 16 is middle-aged. And so you'll read things that even young Edward VI wrote, and you'll think, surely, surely an 11 or 12-year-old could not have written this. And in fact, they did. I mean, they were incredibly grown up, and they were forced to grow up. And so at 16, 1854, Jane Grey was really thrust into this terrible, awful situation uh, Cranmer actually didn't want uh, to sign over the su- plan of succession to Jane Grey. Uh, he was a big believer in the divine right of kings, and we'll talk a little bit about that on the tour a lot because it, it, it really kept favor with Henry. But with the dying Edward VI, his godson, uh, really saying, Godfather, will you do this last thing for me and ensure that we have a Protestant succession? But Cranmer was a politician and knew it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And so she was only queen for nine days. The people rose up, supported Mary. And, um, and really, uh, the, the main points were not so much political as they were religious because she was a convinced Protestant. And actually, when we get to the tower, you're going to be able to see that her husband, uh, Lord Guilford Dudley, uh, while he was awaiting his own execution in the Tower of London, he engraved his initials in Jane Grey's in his cell. And you can see them today. Carving a heart in a tree, you know. And basically, that's what it was. That's what it was. And it's, it's real. It really was. They'd known each other for like three weeks at that point. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. When, that yeah. is where the real 16-year-old yeah, comes it's out. Nuts. it's nuts. Yes. We're going to fly through some of this. Westminster Abbey, of course, famous. Um, everybody's buried there, got married there. We'll, we'll see all that. Um, it's the world's most impractical church. You're going to see that. It, it makes absolutely no sense uh, for everyone who might be jealous of, of people who get to go to royal weddings. Don't be. They didn't see anything. You can't see anything. It's a, every seat is a blind view. <clears throat> this is Cramner's College. He went to Cambridge, um, matriculated 1503. Took him like eight years to get his BA. Lots of reasons for that that we think about. But then it also went. In the middle of all that, he got married. Um, had to relinquish his fellowship. Uh, his first wife and, and, and child died in childbirth. Um, uh, came back, got his, his, his Bachelor of Divinity, his Doctor of Divinity, all from Jesus College, Cambridge. It's just fun to walk the halls and think, this is like where he was. You know, there's so much history that goes through these places. 
And it's also fun. Um, I mean, everywhere you turn, like Andrew said, the electron was invented here. And this is the great court, as they call it, at Trinity College, which is, I think, the largest court like it in the world. And if you remember in the movie Chariots of Fire down here, this is where it was filmed, the great court of Eaton, which they still do. And it was a real thing. Where, Actually, know, it, stroke of 12. To correct it, goes, you, so. the, uh, it was the original <coughs> event happened here at, King's Col- at Trinity College, but it was filmed at Oxford. Correct. And they, they, they said it was Eaton, but it's based here. So anyway, there's fun things like that, too. Let's get to, uh, no, we don't have time for that. Fun story about Martin Bootser and his bones, and you can see his ashes um, here as well. It's the Great St. Mary's, which we saw earlier. Um, Smithfield, unusual thing. And, and you go to Smithfield today, and, and, uh, and it's still a large meat market, and there's a hospital around here. But this St. is where... St. Bart's, the famous teaching hospital in London, is there. Um, this is where almost everybody was burned was burned in London. And you see the same thing when we look at the Oxford Martyrs, Latimer, Ridley, and Cramner next week as they were burned in Oxford. I didn't appreciate this until, uh, until recently. They burned these people um, in the most convenient place, usually where there was a ravine, and so there was sort of a place for all the, the, uh, the affluent to wash downstream. And usually where there was already a market, where there was already kind of a fire that was already going a lot, where you were burning entrails, uh, the parts of the animals that couldn't be eaten, or old vegetables and that sort of thing. So near the meat market at Smithfield, which I think is near, is probably the largest or the oldest cattle market, I think this is true, in, in Europe. Uh, and you can still kind of see how all that was. William Wallace, Braveheart guy in 1305, yeah. was disemboweled and executed there. And then they kept that tradition going, and this is where most people were executed. Um, you can just see some of the, the prints which commemorate some of the time, and you can see what a, what a public event these things were. It's all the, the, the martyrs under um, Henry. Catholics and, and Protestants alike, Henry and Mary primarily, were, uh, were executed. This is just a few of the people that, that were, uh, were killed there with some of the famous last words. Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Um, last words were always famously um, recorded. This is John Frith. So all the best and the brightest in the first generation of English reformers perished. And you can just kind of see how the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the bundles of wood were typically arranged. Um, I'm going to move quickly just so we can have a couple times for questions. This is Anne Askew. Great story. I'm actually going to see here in a minute as she was kept in the Tower of London, which is a really remarkable place. This is an aerial view of it. Uh, it's a misnomer. You go there and you think, where's the tower? It's not really a tower. It's much more of a, a large compound where this white palace, as it's called, or the white tower, is um, uh, dating back from the 11th century. That's kind of how it started, and it became this huge compound with a moat around it where it was there in case of, a, of an attack or an assault. Um, but it was here in the tower. This is where Anne Boleyn probably came through what's called the tra- Trader's Gate off the Thames River, I'm trying to get to a certain slide. This is where a lot of the, uh, the, the royalty and certain nobility were killed here. They didn't go outside the tower because it wasn't a completely public execution. They had some privileges. They weren't burned. They were given the merciful killing of a beheading. Um, as you can see over here on the side, this is where Anne Boleyn, the, the second wife of Henry VIII and the, the, the mother of Elizabeth, uh, was beheaded, uh, uh, Catherine Howard, and the second queen of Henry, who was beheaded, as well as Jane Grey, and some others. 
they were here and they're buried right next to it in a um, uh, in the chapel. But it was here. This is what struck me, and then maybe we'll kind of stop. Uh, this is the White Tower, and you can go through. This is where the crown jewels are, which interests a lot of people. It doesn't interest me as much, but still, it's pretty interesting. I really wanted to see where Ann Askew was probably tortured. And they said, well, just keep going down, because you have to start, and you have to wind your way down, and look through a lot of really interesting armory and that sort of thing. But you end up going down and down and down and down and down. And right here, talk about an understatement. They have this little, I mean, I had to look for this and find it. Tutors, part of the basement may sometimes have been used to hold or torture prisoners. And this is what it looks like now. I mean, it's just this gift shop. And I, I don't want to overstate this because it would be kind of weird, but it's, I thought about that this morning. Almost like when I visited a few of the concentration camps in Germany was the feeling I had here. And it's just such, but it was different because it's just such a disparate and unusual contrast where now it's like the trinkets of the tower. This is the end of your tour. You know, you get off the ride at Six Flags and you get your picture and all that stuff. That's what they want you to do, but it was here that Anne Askew, the only woman to be tortured at the tower that we know of, was placed on the rack, and they wanted, um, at first, the executioner, the, the warden of the tower, started the, the torture, the rack, where they wrap your wrists and your ankles, and they start pulling. It's awful. Um, brutal, brutal, brutal sentry. Uh, and he said, I'm not going to do this anymore, and he left to go tell the king's men. And then the Lord Chancellor who was, um, see, that wasn't Richard Rich, that was Richard Risley, and then Richard Rich, the solicitor, sort of the, the lawyer. They did it themselves. The, the, the aristocracy got their hands dirty, and they just turned the wheel and turned the wheel and turned the wheel until her bones broke and her arms were dislocated. Uh, and she never gave up the names. What names? That would have been Catherine Parr, Queen of England. They were trying to implicate the Queen of England, and she didn't do it. She kept her mouth shut. They finally gave up. Three weeks later, she was burnt. They had to put her in a chair uh, and take her to, the, uh, to Smithfield and burn her. Um, and all this happened right here. And this was a moment for me. I don't want to overstate it, but it was a real, it was a real deal, um, not unlike the concentration camps. Um, the, the faith of, as Andrew started, to say that the, the dead yet speaketh, coming out of the Scripture, um, it's true. It's true for some of us, and it's certainly true for me. So anyway... Anything else you want to say, Andrew? Anywho. Um, yeah, anywho. Um, so, breezing through Bavaria. Put that on so. your Christmas card. Um. Um, is that it? Are we, are we at the – yeah, we're pretty much pretty at the close. end, aren't we? Comment um, or two. Um, what else is left? Uh, well, I mean, basically uh, – Tower Hill. Yeah, let me uh, – so our, our first bit of the trip is going to – and actually, uh, go back. Go back. Well, it's the same thing, really. No, keep going. Forward. This century. Oh. This century. Forward. Anyway. That one? Um, yeah, good enough. Uh, actually, around the corner is, uh, is the tabernacle, uh, Charles Spurgeon's church. So that's, again, another, oh, by the way, there's this around the corner. Um, but um, we're basically, in the first part, going to stay in London as we go out. You know, we're probably going to go to Canterbury. There isn't much to see in Canterbury. There's really good golf if you keep going east. Uh, but, um, but for the most part... Um, we're going to stay in London, and we're going to take day trips out to various and sundry places, so you'll get to enjoy London. Uh, I know that we're going to give you a, they're not called opal cards, what are they called? The little card that will get you around on the tube, and uh, what's that? Oyster cards, that's what they are. And um, you're ready to go, uh, so uh, you'll be able to, to explore and, and see all kinds of things, and, uh, and I'll probably take uh, some side trips uh, as well that I'll throw out there for people to, if they want to be a part of them.
And then, I mean, so we're basically in London. We'll see Oxford, Cambridge. We're going to get to Oxford next week. And then um, uh, what's in and around London, and then we'll head to Go to Durham, to maybe York, and then Edinburgh for three days, yeah. which we'll talk about next week. Yeah. Time for a question or two, maybe? Scotland. Next we'll talk about that next week. Yep. yep. It only takes it only takes a couple minutes to talk about Scotland, Jane. Um, <laughs> we'll get you to teach next week. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm not going to say anything about the history, but I am going to say I hope that you um, are able to outreach to some of the people of England because you mm. see those lovely churches, you have this lovely service today, but the majority of the British people don't even know what Christmas is about. Mm. So I hope that that's going to be on your heart too. Yes, so the English and, yet speaketh. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's, it, to me it's so tragic that it, it is very moving that, that, it is. Jet, that she died and all this. But it's also tragic that, that Christianity is fading over there. So it's a really a real problem, and we know people... Yeah, I don't think that we can exaggerate. I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, it's hard for Americans to, even non-Christian Americans, that, uh, I mean, even things like Easter. A couple years ago, there was a, a battle between the Church of England and a candy company, and the public relations officer, the vice president of this huge, I think it was Cadbury, came out and said, I mean, really, what does Jesus have to do with Easter? I mean, just totally, <laughs> like, I mean... No concept whatsoever uh, of the connection. So one of the things that, that while I'm in London, um, uh, I'm going to have uh, a couple of meetings while I'm there. So one of the guys I'm going to be having breakfast with is Dick Lucas. Uh, Dick is the rector or former rector. Uh, he's 93 years old. Uh, so let's, let's hope he hangs in there till next uh, July. Uh, but uh, he and I are going to get together because they've had a remarkable ministry in the city of London down in the financial uh, district where they've had... Uh, a weekly Bible study there that gathers hundreds and hundreds of business people, and lots of people have come to know the Lord through that. And uh, wonderful ministries like the Cornhill Training Scheme that's raised up a whole new generation uh, of leaders, as well as things like the Proclamation Trust uh, and other things. So I, I think that meeting with them, hopefully to encourage them, but also for us to understand that America's not too far behind that. And, and so we need to be thinking about our own models of ministry and how we communicate the gospel and to not take things for granted. Tackle a Brit. That's right. I'm in. That's right. I'm in. That's right. So when we're in Cambridge, we'll also talk about Charles Simeon. Yep. Who's, uh, so much to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Well, you can thank Charles Dickens for that, who was a believer, by the way. Uh, I mean, yeah, the Christmas, it feels like Christmas is supposed to feel uh, over there when you go through the covered market in Oxford or someplace like that. And you see the, the game hanging from the rafters, and, uh, which is not morbid. It's actually nice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but it, it really is a cultural uh, celebration rather than uh, welcoming uh, our rescuer into this world. Troy Hayes of Brownell Travel. Having traveled with these two um, in Germany, just to give you a little flavor, a little bit of what you've seen today is what they do. This is just the most extraordinary opportunity for, uh, A, you get fellowship, and, and, but you also get 
theologian and historical view that it's just unparalleled. And, and to see, you know, to stand in Germany and watch uh, Gil, for, you know, unpack, you know, um, art to understand the setting of the time, etc., to inform us why, how we got where we are and what these people fought, fought for. But to do that with Andrew and with Gil and John O and those resources, this is, this is really extraordinary um, and, and incredibly fulfilling. So, uh, but you got a little taste of it today. Pray it's out, Andrew. Yeah, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the gift and heritage that we're given. And Lord, uh, we're not looking uh, to necessarily return to the past but uh, hold anew and afresh the message of the gospel uh, that uh, speaks of our salvation uh, even this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.